Hello, everybody. This is the Friendly Bear Podcast, where we interview some of the best and brightest traders in the trading community. Listen to inspiring stories and nuggets of insight from current and future game changers in the trading space. Listen and learn as we explore all types of trading niches with some of the best in the industry from a Friendly Bear point of view. Make sure to check out the Friendly Bear Podcast new YouTube channel called Friendly Bear Research, which includes all the podcast video content and supplemental screen shares. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes. With that being said, I'm your host, David, a.k.a. Reverse Long, and this is the Friendly Bear Podcast. Let's dive in. What's up, guys? This is David, a.k.a. Reverse Long, with the Friendly Bear Podcast and the Macro Driver Podcast. And today I have uh, Joe Kennedy, as well as author David McKnight. So David McKnight is our guest today, and he is an, uh, the author of The Power of Zero, which is one uh, a best-selling book. And for two two consecutive years, Forbes magazine ranked the power of zero as one of the top ten financial resources in the country. So yeah, um, Joe specifically read the book and ran ran it by me. All these incredible notes, and I, I got it coming in on the way. And in the meantime, uh, we reached out to David uh, to come on the podcast and talk about it. So, what's up, Joe? Uh, David, first, how you doing? I'm good. I appreciate you having me on. Excited to have a good chat. Nice, nice. So, Joe, how's it going? It's going well. I got awesome. my book here. I just finished actually last week. Um, and David, I came across it. I was doing David. I was doing seventy-five hard again, which you introduced me to, and I was just looking for a a basic financial planning book that I was curious about. So I went on Amazon, and this came up as a top hit. So I went to Barnes and Noble and picked it up. And after I read it, I, it was really insightful, and it, it it made me curious about this one because I've never spoken about it with my parents, and I don't really have anyone in my life who who considers the things that were brought up in this book. And I also thought it'd be great for the podcast. So David, if you could just give an overview from your perspective of the book, then I have some specific questions I wanted to jump into, but I think you'd do a better job than I would of uh, providing some context to what we're going to be talking about. You bet. Uh, I would go backward in time a little bit. Uh, when Bill Clinton left office, uh, he gave his final speech to the nation. He said, look, I got great news. You know, I'm leaving. I'm leaving office. There's only five trillion dollars of national debt. The budget. Uh, we're going to have budget surpluses through the next 25 years. And so it was really, you know, rainbows and unicorns. And so everybody thought, you know, all our financial problems were, were solved. But what's happened since then? Uh, we've added on another $26 trillion of debt. Uh, that's due to unfunded obligations for the um, prescription drug program, a couple of unfunded wars, uh, COVID, a bunch of other things sprinkled in there. Now we're at $32 trillion, $31, $32 trillion, and there's really no end in sight. And, and, and we, we really even haven't addressed the big problems, which are unfunded obligations for Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Some experts say that what we promise that we can't afford to pay is about $239 trillion worth of benefits for Social Security, Medicare, Medicare Medicaid, and interest on the national debt. So we're marching into this future where the national debt's just going to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. There's no way to keep these entitlement programs solvent other than by raising taxes. So we're, we're sort of marching into this apocalyptic future where tax rates, according to most experts, have to, you know, as much as double in the next 10 years to keep our country solvent. Yet Americans keep putting money hand over fist into tax-deferred retirement plans like 401ks and IRAs, um, getting deductions at today's historically low tax rates, 
only to postpone the payment of those taxes until a point in the future when everybody believes that tax rates are likely to be much higher than they are today. And uh, mathematically speaking, that doesn't add up. That means you're going to run out of money much quicker than you thought because of higher tax rates that you didn't anticipate spending. And so the, the goal of the book, I call the power of zero. The idea here is that if you can um, sit, resituate your assets in the tax-free vehicles today, the cost of admission for tax-free accounts is you got to be willing to pay a tax at today's rates. But if you can get all of your retirement assets situated such that you're in the 0% tax bracket, that really is the best way to shield yourself from a doubling of tax rates over time. Why? Because as I often say, if tax rates double and you're in the 0% tax bracket, two times zero is still zero. So the, the general message of the book is to try to take advantage of every nook and cranny within the IRS tax code to shield yourself from the impact of higher taxes down the road. And that's uh, that's really the, the gist of the message. Great. Appreciate it. The one product... Um... Growing up, I guess the one thing my parents did talk about is these life insurance plans, and I'd never heard of a LERP until I started reading uh-huh. the book. Can you give the audience a little background of what a LERP is? In, I know you talk about there's like hundreds of different LERPs to choose from, choosing a good from a bad, things to consider. Just give us an overview of, of a LERP and how you look at it from your perspective, because I brought the context when I was reading the book that life insurance policies are not something that you even want to go near. Yeah, I mean, a lot of, a lot of times that is the case. Uh, the way the way I explain it is this: all LIRPs are life insurance policies, but not all life insurance policies are LIRPs. Um, LIRPs have to have specific qualities that um, that you know that, that such that you can utilize them um, in the type of planning that that I that I call for in the Power of Zero. So what we're looking for is a scenario where you buy as little death benefit as the IRS requires of you, but you stuff as much money into it as the IRS allows in an attempt to mimic all of the tax-free benefits of the Roth IRA. The difference with the LIRP is it doesn't have any of the constraints of the Roth IRA. There's no income limitations. There's no no contribution limits. Um, You know, you don't have any age restrictions, uh, so on and so forth. And you have a death benefit that for a lot of uh, people that are approaching retirement, uh, the thing that's really appealing to them is that they can receive that death benefit in advance of their death for the purpose of paying for long-term care. And that's a big deal because nobody wants to pay for expensive long-term care insurance. That's a use it or lose it proposition where you pay, 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 pay for 30 years, die peaceful in your sleep, never having used it. And then you lost all your money. Um, In this scenario, if you don't end up needing long-term care and die peaceful in your sleep, never having used it, then someone's still getting a death benefit, probably your kids or your grandkids. So there's two components. You've got cash value that you can utilize while you're alive. It grows safely and productively in a tax-free environment. You have a death benefit that doubles as long-term care. Uh, that a lot of people are using for, um, like I said, for that long-term care uh, coverage. So it's it's not a silver bullet. It's not a panacea by any means. Um, it yeah. should be viewed as a just one facet of a balanced, comprehensive approach to tax-free retirement. But it does have some qualities that none of these other tax-free streams of income like Roth IRAs, Roth 401ks can accomplish. Interesting. Another thing, kind of along the same lines, but not not exactly. I'm I'm a big Substack reader. If you're familiar with Substack and some of like the fringe finance folks, like the Bowtie accounts, etc. And one of the accounts has spoken about all the benefits of an HSA and how an HSA starts to act like a traditional IRA, if you will, when you turn 65. I didn't hear as much of a mention of HSAs in the book. Do you have a similar perspective that an HSA is a beneficial vehicle for the pre-tax contribution, tax-free withdrawal? 
obviously it's intended to be used for medical expenses, but you can also use it for other expenses down the line. Just want to see how you viewed HSAs. Yeah, I, I love HSAs to, to the extent that people have them available. I think you should you should fund them to the max each and every year. I call HSAs a little bit of a holy grail of financial planning because you get a deduction on the front end. You let that money grow tax free and then you take it out tax free. Uh, the only other thing that you can do that uh, with is an IRA where you're taking RMDs out in retirement and then that that RMD gets offset by your standard deduction. So similar to the HSA, you got a deduction when you put the money in the IRA or that 401k, you grew yeah. it tax deferred and then you take it out tax free by having it offset by the standard deduction. So the HSA is really a magical account. And, um, you, you know, if you qualify for it, you should really not let a let a year go by where you're not fully funding it. David, are you are you involved in this being an entrepreneur? Like I have a W-2, so I get a lot of these benefits. But for a lot of your listeners who might not have a W-2, are these things that you take advantage of as like an entrepreneur, like your own 401k or like a, a self-employed HSA? Or are those things that you have as well? Um, no. Well, I live, in, I live in Puerto Rico, uh, so I play by a different set of rules. Uh, you know, here in Puerto Rico, because I've got a qualified business, they waive my federal tax, they waive my state tax, and they charge me a flat 4% tax, and they waive my capital gains tax. So every dollar that I save here in Puerto Rico is like saving it into a massive Roth IRA. So um, I don't play by the same rules that uh, people play by uh, on the mainland, even though I'm technically a Puerto Rico citizen and still uh, still a, a, a resident of the United States. So I don't um, I don't follow the same rules because it's just a different tax system. Understood. And to give you some context, David, David Capablanca and I met in Puerto Rico. I was actually there this past weekend. So David's very familiar oh, no, with kidding. the, yeah, with yeah. the very cool. tax proposition of, of Puerto Rico. Yeah, yeah. How long have you been in Puerto Rico? David. I've been here about six years. Uh, moved here uh, literally six weeks before Hurricane Maria. Uh, Hurricane oh, Maria okay. blew us back to Wisconsin for about six months. And then we had the audacity to come back and have endured another couple hurricanes since then. But, you know, six years, six years and all. Yeah. Nice. That's cool. And to give you some context as well, David, I'm from Mar uh, Milwaukee. I went to Marquette. So I'm born and raised in the, the greater Milwaukee oh, nice. area as well. Okay. Um, Kindred spirit then. Awesome. That's awesome. Um, yeah, so after I read your book and I was looking at the actionable chapter, I was just curious. I've never met with a financial planner. Um, I think a lot of people, it sneaks up on them and they're too late, potentially. And why not start young, especially when you start considering these these things. But when I was Googling it, I didn't find a lot of financial planners who took the approach that you did, if you will. Do you consider it kind of like a fringe approach? And, and how would you go about finding somebody who kind of views financial planning this way? Um, he, the, you got to ask yourself how most major money management institutions make money. How do most major money management institutions make money? They charge you a fee for the amount of money that they're managing for you. So let's say they're managing a million of your dollars in the tax deferred bucket and your four, you know, say your IRA yeah. and they're charging you 1%. How much are they making off you per year? They're making 10,000 bucks per year. If they were to persuade you the tax rates in the future are likely to be dramatically higher than they are today, then you might just feel impressed to shift that money to tax-free by way of a Roth conversion. And what are you going to have to pay along the way? You're going to have to pay taxes. Let's call it 30%. So you pay 30% tax on that million bucks. Now you got $700,000 sitting in your tax-free bucket. 
Now, if they're still charging you 1%, now they're only making $7,000 per year off you. So didn't they just experience a pay cut for persuading you that tax rates in the future are likely to be dramatically higher than they are today? And for that reason alone, most major money management institutions don't touch this conversation with a 10-foot pole. Right. Me personally, I don't care how much money someone has. The only thing that matters to me is how much they actually get to spend after tax. Now, that said, um, there, you know, I, I just spoke at a conference of 600 financial advisors um, in, in Las Vegas this last weekend. So, and you know, I've addressed, you know, tens and tens and tens of thousands of financial advisors over the years, all of whom are, you know, either have adopted or in the process of adopting this strategy, because I think that financial advisors can read the handwriting on the wall. They can see that we've got unfunded obligations in our country. The only way to pay for those is to raise taxes dramatically. And frankly, 401ks and IRAs are sitting on the on the train tracks and there's a tax freight train bearing down on them. So we know we have to systematically reposition that money to tax free. So I think if you dig a little further, you'll find that uh, a lot more people. I don't think that that, you know, if you were to research somebody's website and pull that up, you would see right on the front page, I'm a tax-free retirement planner. You have to really dig in and have a conversation with them. And that right. detail might only emerge after a fairly in-depth conversation. Right. It's difficult. Um, I guess shifting the perspective, we're not on macro jabber, David, but for Friendly Bear, because I think it's interesting. What do you think will be the event that causes I like social security to not be funded or these unfunded events to actually occur? Because David and I have, we've, we've interviewed other folks and like one would have thought that 2020 would have been the thing that broke it when we did QE infinity and like bazooka, like, but we have so far weathered the storm. Well, what do you think will be like the event that ruins these funded programs that aren't necessarily funded? Yeah, I don't know if any, I don't know if they're going to be ruined. Um, I, I personally believe that social security is never going to go away. I think there's going to be people that receive massive cuts across the board. Um, what the, um, what the congressional budget office tells us is that in 2032, if Congress does nothing, then the social security, every recipient will re receive an across the board cut in their social security payment of 23%. Why is that? That's because Social Security up until now has survived just on the incoming, um, you know, the incoming tax payments. Um, there's been a Social Security trust fund that's been what's built up over the years. But that trust fund uh, is going to uh, be completely diminished by 2032. And so at that point, the only thing that's going to be left are is that incoming revenue. There's not going to yeah. be that that rainy day fund that they're going to that, that historically they've been able to dip into. Um, and the, you know, 2027 is when social or uh, when Medicare, which is five times more expensive, is going to um, experience similar cuts. And so it's not a question of is there one event that's that's going to, you know, completely destroy these programs for Americans. It's sort of like death by a thousand paper cuts. You know, um, it's going to experience cuts at first um, and then further cuts as yep. the national debt continues to grow and compound. So. Um, so I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think any politician out there wants to be put, yep. you know, held accountable for having these massive cuts and these that, that vulnerable people rely upon year right. over year. And so what's going to happen is they're my personal philosophy is that they're likely to raise taxes on, you know, the top 10 percent of income earners, uh, you know, people that hold 
you know, $500,000 or more, those are the people who are going to sort of carry the burden of, of paying those taxes. Yep. Um, former Comptroller General of the Federal Government, David Walker, um, he wrote a book called Comeback America. It's back in 2008, where he predicted that by 2030, the effective tax rate on all Americans would have to rise to 45% to pay for all of these unfunded obligations. And so we're not going to see these program programs go away. I don't even think we're going to see them get cut. I think we're going to see tax rates rise dramatically to pay for them. And that's what that's sort of the warning cry I'm trying to get out to people. Yeah. Tax the uh, unrealized capital gains. Um, David, do you have anything that you want to you wanna ask that's exhausted my list of questions? I appreciate it, David. It's been really insightful. And again, the book was great. I, I'd recommend it to anyone. Yeah, I had, I had some questions. We were, we were preparing some notes before the podcast on, on Joe's uh, from Joe's reading of the book. And uh, Joe, you, you mentioned in the notes about uh, life insurance, debunking life insurance. That's always been like co- kind of confusing for me to navigate because uh, the last person that explained it to me is like, you know, so you get the life insurance with like, with a bunch of money and then like you can borrow it against, you know, you, you borrow it and like invest it. And like, so basically it sounds like the life insurance is like a bonus uh that's created from nothing. I don't, I don't, I never fully understood it. Yeah. The first thing I want to say about life insurance is that anybody that holds that life insurance policy out as a silver bullet or as the only tax-free instrument you should adopt, you sort of got to run, not walk the other way. These things only really work as a complement to all of the other tax-free streams of income. Like I said at the beginning, life insurance can do some things that these other tax-free streams of income can't do. And you know, I, I've got lots of videos on my YouTube channel where I talk about that. But um, the minute somebody says that, that, that you should put all of your money into these types of arrangements, I get very, very nervous about that. And there's people that, I, that, that, that are all over TikTok that are, uh, you know, that are promoting these types of ideas. And it's just not wise. Um, they do some things that are very interesting and they're a great complement to what all these other streams of tax free income can do. But they're not everything. And so so the analogy that I give with with this life, these life insurance retirement plans, like you put money into a bucket as that money grows safely and productively, your bucket begins to fill. And the IRS says that they're going to treat the, the growth in that bucket differently than any of these other traditional tax deferred retirement plans we talk about. There's no limits on how much you can you can put in. There's uh, as your money grows, uh, you don't pay tax when you take that money out, if you take it out the right way. Uh, it doesn't show up as reportable income on your tax return. It doesn't count against the thresholds, which cause Social Security taxation. There's no income limitations. It's generally believed that it will be immune from tax law changes in the future. So once you have it uh, and they change the rule down the road, that they'll grandfather you under the old rule. So you can continue to put money into it for the rest of your life. So this is a very attractive sort of um, description, right? Um, but the IRS says if we're going to give you the benefit of this unlimited bucket of tax-free dollars, we're going to require that there be, there be a cost of admission. We're going to require that there be a spigot attached to the side of that bucket through which flows on a monthly basis some expenses. And what do those expenses go towards? They go towards the cost of life insurance. So you got a bucket of money, and this is sort of the clearest analogy I can try to make here. You got a bucket of money that's growing tax-free that you can access tax-free. Um, while you're alive. And then you've got a death benefit that's there when you die, but you can also access the death benefit in advance of your death for the purpose of paying for long-term care if necessary. So um, I think there can be a lot of confusing explanations out there, but that analogy, I think, is the one that sort of brings it home the best. Wow. So so it almost sounds like, is it is it a no-brainer to get life insurance? 
you know, <laughs> the way, I mean. No, 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 that's, uh, in fact, that's, that's usually one of the phrases that I warn people against, you know, this is a no brainer. It's a, you know, it's a silver bullet, no matter what your situation, uh -huh. you should check it out. Um, I, I, I'm very reluctant to, you know, to, to hold it out as a no brainer. I would, I can say it could potentially, depending on your situation, I see, see an interesting complement to your Roth IRA, Roth 401k, Roth conversion, taking money out of your uh, IRA up to standard deductions. And if you can keep your provisional income low enough, then your social security is tax-free. So I really advocate for between four and six different streams of tax-free income, none of which show up on the IRS's radar, but all of which contribute to you being in the 0% tax bracket. So it's really a balanced approach. And um, I think that that really sets my vision and my philosophy apart from a lot of the other quote unquote tax-free retirement advocates that are that are out there awesome awesome what are the um, models what do the models look like for projecting uh an appropriate traditional ira or 401k balance that you should have right like i'm in my 20s still is there a model that you would input and say like this is probably the limit that you should have in one because not saying this is for myself but i have peers who like max it out every year and they're going to have an insanely large traditional 401k balance in retirement and don't understand the yeah, Roth component. And I'm not saying that for myself, but I still contribute to a traditional 401k. And like, at what point is it too much? Yeah, I mean, I think you bring up a great point, and that is you can have too much money. Um, in fact, I, a recent video on my on my YouTube channel, I said, can you have too much money in your 401k? And the answer is yes. Why do I say that? Well, let's say you got $2 million in your 401k. Could be a million. Uh, at some point in time, the IRS is going to force you to take money out of there. It's called required minimum distributions at 73. And at what rate are you going to pay tax? Who knows? Could be double where they where it is today. Um, a little bit like going into a business partnership with the IRS. And every year, the IRS gets to vote on what percentage of your profits they get to keep. Not a very good business partnership, if you ask me. So um, you could have a million dollars in your IRA, $2 million in your IRA. But unless you can accurately predict what tax rates are going to be, when in the year you take that money out, you don't really know how much money you have. And it's hard to plan for retirement if you didn't know how much money you have. So all that said, uh, I would say that mathematically speaking, the ideal amount of money to have in your IRAs and 401ks, it's not zero, um, but you want it to be low enough that required minimum dist distributions are completely offset by your standard deduction but also lower enough that it doesn't cause social security taxation. Remember the IRS is looking at how much money you take out of that IRA and 401k. If you right. take out too much, they say, Hey, uh, Joe and David have too much money. We're not going to give them all of their social security. We're going to tax a portion of it. That doesn't happen when you take money out of true tax free vehicles like Roth IRAs, Roth 401ks, Roth conversions and life insurance. So we want to keep that money low enough that we stay off the IRS's radar from a tax perspective and from a social security taxation perspective. So if you're married, that, that amount is going to be about $350,000. If you're single, it's going to be about half that amount. So there is, there is a, you know, that's sort of what I tell people in a rising tax rate environment. There's a mathematically perfect amount of money to have in your 401k and IRA. And if you project that you're going to have too much money by the time you retire, then you should either not contribute to those types of accounts today or start to do some Roth conversions along the way so that by the time you hit that age, yep. you've done all the heavy lifting, you can then take those dollars out uh, totally tax-free because you're offsetting them by the standard deduction or move to puerto rico or move to puerto rico which is a got a lot of a lot of things there's a lot of trade-offs that are involved with that so you got to <laughs> think about that long and hard before you do it right understood well 
I appreciate your perspective and going through all that, David. It was really helpful and it definitely gave me something to, to consider going forward. So appreciate it. Awesome. Dave, anything else you have? Uh, no, that's it. Any other final thoughts, uh, Dave? Yeah, the only other final thought I would say is um, you got a couple of looming deadlines coming up. Um, I believe that it's all going to hit the fan about 2030. I don't mean to wax apocalyptic or seem sort of, um, you know, scandalous or polemic here. Um, there's a number of experts that believe that all of this debt, um, all of these unfunded obligations are all going to create this perfect storm come 2030 uh, that are going to force tax rates to go up and potentially precipitate a depression. Um, and when you look at the numbers, it's hard to argue with it. So what I would say is make sure if you're going to be shifting money to tax-free, you get all the heavy lifting done before 2030. The other thing that I would tell you is that in 2026, the current tax rates revert back to what they were in 2017, which is higher than they are today. So you want to make sure that not a year goes by between now and 2026 where you're not taking advantage of those historically low tax rates if you are potentially looking at doing some asset shifting through Roth conversions and whatnot, because you want to you want to take advantage of tax rates. You know, chapter six of my update revised version of the power zero is called the tax sale of a lifetime. What does that mean? That means that taxes for the next three years are never, ever in the future going to be as low as they are today. So that's an opportunity. It's a window of opportunity. Every year that goes by where you fail to take advantage of that window of opportunities, potentially a year beyond 2026 and definitely beyond 2030 when you're likely to pay the highest tax rates you're likely to see in your lifetime. Gotcha. And with that, so do you think anything in Puerto Rico is going to change in the, in the future? Statehood. Statehood, yes. Statehood, all bets are off. Short of statehood, uh, the current tax law, tax it's called Act 60, uh, expires in 2035. So um, I think they're probably going to extend that because the last thing they want is for everyone to get out of Dodge all at once in 2035. That's That would precipitate a little mini recession or depression here in uh in puerto rico all by itself but um yeah so that's 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 what it's looked like looking like in puerto rico very interesting well dave hey thanks a lot for coming on the podcast and sharing that wisdom from the book and uh yeah thanks a lot joe and thank um, you yeah until next time thanks a lot dave we'll have this up soon and we'll have everything in the show notes about the book everyone to get okay thanks guys yeah, appreciate it you. thank you bye. bye that concludes today's episode Make sure to like and subscribe to the channel on the platform you use. The Friendly Bear Podcast is hosted by me, David, where you can find me on Twitter at reverse underscore long. You can find the Friendly Bear Podcast at www.thefriendlybearpodcast.com, as well as on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, Amazon Music, and now on YouTube at Friendly Bear Research. Until next time, thank you for listening to the Friendly Bear Podcast.